I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It is the truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife and a good podcast to keep you busy. Well, fingers crossed, that's what you found here. This is Writer's Routine. Hello, welcome along. It's the show where we take a look inside the daily diary of an author to see how they organise their creativity for maximum effect. And we've got a big guest on the show today. We're talking to Garrod Conley. He is the author of Boy Erased. It's a memoir on how he survived gay conversion therapy. And it's an incredible conversation. We talk about how he was able to relive such an awful experience in order to get it down on paper. Also, we hear about the strange meditation techniques with a pen that Garrett needs to get him in that writing zone. And also why he's an incredibly early bird. There's this mysterious thing that happens when you wake up at 4.30 in the morning, which is like no one else is awake. There's almost no sound, even in New York, and it feels like you're doing something almost forbidden, like no one else is doing it. So there's a sense of isolation. And we talk about how he organises his ideas. So when he knows exactly what is happening in his story, but he's not quite sure how to plot it, it turns out sometimes the strangest things provide the most clarity. And then I was actually sitting in this Chinese restaurant that had an amazingly beautiful appetizer, (laughs) and the appetizer was... It was very simple. It was just like these perfectly cut cucumber sticks and carrots. Um, I took a cucumber and a carrot and put it next to each other. And then I was like, I took another cucumber and another carrot. And it was a very simple structure. It was like, okay, I can have a day in each, you know, each day in the camp is the cucumber and each time period leading up to the camp is the carrot. So stay there. That is all on the way in this week's writer's routine with Garrett Conley. Hello, welcome along, welcome back. This is Writer's Routine. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. It's the place where we chat to an author about their working day to try and squeeze all the nuances and the idiosyncrasies out uh, about how they plan, about how they plot and how they get to the publishing part. And hopefully it'll help us get that book that's knocking around our heads finally out and down on paper. Now we're doing something a little bit different with this show, so stay there. 
I promise that you'll love it, but bear with me. Uh, it means that we need to quickly crack through some admin before we start. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter. It is at WritersPod on there. It's the best way to get a nice, speedy reply and a retweet. Also, we're on Instagram, at WritersRoutine there, where you can see some glossy and filtered motivational quotes to try and inspire you with your work every day. Uh, you can get in touch with the show on our website too. That's the best place to listen back to all of the shows that we've done so far as well. It is WritersRoutine.com. And remember, if you are enjoying this show at all, please tell someone else about it. Now, the best way actually is by letting someone that you don't know about what we do. To do that, you can leave a review on the iTunes podcast store. It will take barely half a minute of your time. Please find Writer's Routine there. Leave your name. Drop us five stars if you fancy. It's so simple. The best way is to find Writer's Routine on the iTunes podcast store. So today's guest sharing his writer's routine is Garrod Conley. His book, Boy Erased, it's just been released in the UK, and it's a memoir on how he survived gay conversion therapy. Now, Garrod grew up in uh, the Bible Belt of the United States to hugely religious parents. His father was a Baptist preacher. He was taught that yoga was wrong, that evolution wasn't true, uh, that Harry Potter was evil, which is kind of sacrilege on a writing podcast. Uh, And in his late teens, Garrod was outed to his parents and he was given the ultimatum go to gay conversion therapy, try this 12-step program and attempt to change who you are and see what happens, or lose contact with your family forever. It's a book that's stormed to success in the States. Massive critical acclaim. It's being made into a film too, with Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman starring in it. It's out later this year. And Garrod and I chat about what it's like to relive such a traumatic experience to write it down. And also how he knew that his story could be incredibly gripping and page-turning. And how he tried to find the balance between experience and exploitation. We also chat about the curious focusing tasks that he needs a pen and a piece of string for, what he has learned about writing as he starts work on his second book, and also what he thinks of religion now. You know, since he was raised following a book which claimed to be just about love, but in actual fact that was used to try and make him hate himself. Now, a few things just before we start, uh, which might be a little bit awkward, because even though I work and make and produce a writing podcast... I'm not the most well-read of people, and that becomes abundantly clear very quickly when I hardly know any of the books that Garrod asks me about. So bear with me on that. And at times, I've also got a very high-pitched laugh. I mean, think Jimmy Carr in a tussle with a hyena in a room filled with helium. And you can hear that laugh a lot through this. He's just a very funny man, so I'm sorry about it already. Usually, you see, I would edit it out for time's sake more than anything else. But with this show, I've kind of done something a little bit different. Normally, I edit most of our author chats simply because I want to share with you the most important tips and help that we can because I know that you're busy and there are loads of podcasts out there that take up hours of your time and we don't need more of those. But it's this chat was so powerful. It was so inspiring and nuanced and helpful that I didn't think it would be right to cut any of it. Garrod speaks with such emotion, such passion, such clarity. I thought it would be an injustice to edit out and for me to decide what bits of his story that we should keep. Now, it won't be non-stop. We will probably take a break for ads about halfway through, but that'll be it. 
That'll be the only pause for the rest of the show as we hear the whole of Garrod Conley's story and how it became an actual story that you can pick up and that you can read. Let's get going then with his writer's routine, starting as always with the place where he usually sits down to work. Well, I normally sit down to write on my couch in Brooklyn. I just moved to a new apartment, so it's a bit different now. But um, yeah, I had a roommate who didn't wake up until noon. So I would just sit on this white couch that was kind of dirty with cat hair. And um, it, it was like the the walls around us were dripping with strange black liquid at different times. And so it's like stained with these liquids. And um, the walls, like the wallpaper was peeling and I think a mushroom was growing through at one point. Did you ever get to the bottom of what the black liquid was? No, I didn't ask questions. <laughs> Sometimes you just don't want to ask those questions. It was not a glamorous life, but I only paid $800 for my room. It was a closet, basically. So you've got walls covered in mushrooms and, yeah. and strange black things dripping. Is there anything that you can see around you that perhaps takes you away from that and maybe inspires you mm. to write while you're there. I have to be almost in a dungeon-like world in order to write. I can't be too interested in anything outside of, of that room. So the window had a fire escape, which was kind of nice. <laughs> but um, but other than that, the room was pretty plain. I mean, there were like a lot of books everywhere. So I, I like to, like when I'm writing, I'll get up from the couch, grab a few books that feel like they're somehow in conversation with what I'm writing and then I'll open up to random pages and just sort of feel the language and texture and then move on from there. So you say you feel the language and the texture. Mm -hmm. What kind of things are you looking for and, and then how are you using that to kind of keep everything moving? I read a lot of poetry at night and in the morning before I start writing because I'm a prose writer but I feel like it's really important to start the engine of language with, you know, some of the most potent stuff. And I think poetry is better than prose in every way. Um, they're just, they're more in tune with language, poets are. And they're, they're generally, um, like the lines and the line breaks are just so strong for me. And so I like to carry over that energy into my prose. Even though I, I can't write poetry, I wish I could. Um, I think it's important to really get things weird with language so that you feel it's almost like you're stretching, you know, your writerly abilities by reading poetry. And then when you sit down to write, um, nothing you write is too unusual because the poets are really strange people, you know. Talk to me about the weird uses of language then that you've come across that have have really inspired you while you're writing this one. Well, I'm a huge fan of, of the metaphysical poets, especially for Boy Erased, which was a very, you know, it was in conversation with a lot of religious tradition. So John Donne is one of my favorites. And he he's so body at one point, and then at, at another point, he's very reverent, and his language is always, you know, capturing these extended metaphors that go on for, you know, way too long. And I just love how playful he is and how controlled at the same time he is. I think it's all about light and shade, isn't it? And I'm mm -hmm. sure we'll come to that, especially with the type of book that you have written, to, uh, to, to, to get the, the full message of it across. Mm -hmm. That's what it kind of needs to be. Now, the show is called Writer's Routine. 
So tell me yours. The first moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day where you are sitting down to write, how does it go? Leave no mm. kind of nerdy stone unturned okay. for me. This is like my favorite stuff to talk about. <laughs> Please, I'll go ahead. Thank you know how you. writers will be at an event and someone will ask about process and writers will like roll their eyes. I'm just like, mine light up. I get very excited when we talk about process. Well, I'm very um, excited <laughs> then, Garrett. Go ahead. So um, when I'm in my good modes, which is like, you know, sitting down to write every day and I'm on schedule i actually wake up usually at 4 30 in the morning and um I, I find this to be essential because there's this mysterious thing that happens when you wake up at 4 30 in the morning which is like no one else is awake there's almost no sound even in new york and um it feels like you're doing something almost forbidden like no one else is doing it um so there's a sense of isolation and i take about 30 minutes before i start writing sometimes an hour if i'm feeling sort of lazy or tired um, but I really allow myself to indulge in reading good poetry and sometimes prose that sounds like poetry. Um, like I've, I've been recently reading Juna Barnes. Do you know her? She wrote, um, a really strange novel. Actually, it was called Nightwood and it's this one of the first like big lesbian novels. It was actually, um, touted by a lot of poets at the time as, as an important novel. But the language sounds like poetry, and it almost doesn't make sense. Like, you read it, you have to read it five billion times, and you still don't understand it. So I've been reading that lately, and I'll, I'll sort of start reading it, I'll make coffee, um, and then slowly sip my coffee and allow myself to enter into that world. And um, I can't read anything that's too perfectly polished. Like, if I read something like Virginia Woolf, for example, I would just be like, why am I writing? <laughs> you know? So I like things that are weird or things that I could never do in my own prose. That's interesting because I would imagine a lot of writers would like to read some of the best there is. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm trying to get up to the scratch of. But you find the reverse of that. You think it's almost too daunting. Well, yeah. I mean, and I guess maybe I don't mean the best there is, but more like the the best there is within your tradition. So I like to write like Virginia Woolf. I mean, that's my goal eventually. But but if I read Virginia Woolf before I try to write like Virginia Woolf, then I'll just be like, why am I doing this? Because it's obvious that I'm not as good as her. Um, so I like to read a lot of different things that um, I would never think of writing. Um, so Juna Barnes is one of those writers. She's just so unusual. And she has these long monologues from characters that make almost no sense. And they combine all of this strange philosophy that I've never heard of. Um, so I love that. And then at around 5 or 5.30, I sit down on on my ugly couch, and um, I just start, like, I, I might read over what I'd written the day before, like maybe a few pages. <clears throat> and then uh, I like to enter into the scene through some sort of image or some sort of sound that I'm really interested in. And perhaps most importantly for me, and this is going to be strange to explain, but um, I've, I've been doing this thing since I was about four years old where I take a string and a pencil or two strings and I move them in front of my face, like sort of repeatedly. Are the strings <clears throat> tied to the pencil? I, I do like to tie them to the pencil. So it's sometimes. almost like a metronome. Mm -hmm. And then, then, then what happens with them? So I sort of move it in front of my face over and over again, almost like you would see like a cat sort of... I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> this, yeah, this mm -hmm. brings to mind a kitten straight away. Yeah, and I love cats, so it makes sense. And um, so I'll sort of move it a across my field of vision until I no longer really see what's in front of me and I, I can enter into my imagination. And usually it's visual. 
that sounds crazy, but I actually have um, had some friends who have studied this kinds of like these kinds of repetitive behaviors before, and they said that it's actually a kind of self hypnosis that people do this sometimes. What would happen if you weren't to do it for a day? I wouldn't be able to write. I mean, I could potentially write, but you would still see me sitting with a pencil, like sort of shaking it in front of my face. Like it, it's impossible for me not to do it. Um, it. It's like such an important part of entering into that experience. It's a ritual. So then when you've entered, when you've done this ritual to enter into your, I don't know, your almost trance-like state, mm-hmm. how does it feel then? What are you thinking of when, when you sit down and you start <coughs> writing at about 5, 5.30? So it's it's usually like... I'm thinking about the character and I'm like entering into that experience and it might be uh, like I'm like, so for example, if the character is picking up a glass or something, um, I'm thinking, okay, how did they, how did their hands look on the glass? And, and I might focus on it for five minutes and then, then describe it or try to describe it. So I have to exit the trance, write that sentence down and then re-enter and of course, for writing a memoir, it's much different. So, you know, my book is a memoir, but I'm writing fiction now. And and with writing memoir, I had to really um, use that to like re-enter a memory and sort of focus on what I remember physically. So I might remember that someone was standing, you know, in a corner of the room, and I might remember that the teapot in the room was blue, but the rest of the room is a little fuzzy for me, so I have to sit there until it kind of comes back. This may be a, a stupid question. When you've retreated from your trance, when you've started writing what it is you've just remembered, do you then have to do the whole pencil on the string thing again? <coughs> yes. I so you're doing it multiple, multiple times a day. It's a, it's a back and forth, almost like it feels intuitive. You know, I'll just know I need to, I call it stringing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah. I'll say like I need to string again. I mean, I'm not thinking of it consciously. It's just happening. I, but I can't allow myself to string for too long before writing because if I do that for too long, then I won't write. I'll just be like, oh, I'm in my mind. Why do I need to write it down? It's it's my own world. So <clears throat> you're, you're stringing many times throughout the day mm-hmm. and you start, as we say, about 5.30. Yeah. I usually go until about 7. In, in so a, a, a continuous, almost 90-minute burst. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. what happens? Well, then I try to really separate out that so I, I think of the time as really sacred. I have really strange rituals, and that's the only way I can get anything done because I will just stay doing that all day and go insane. You know, I, like if I stay in that mode for too long, then nobody wants to be around me when I'm out of it. I'm just like a miserable wreck, and I'm and I only want to go back to it. So I have to sort of force myself to take a shower, and in the shower, I'm just. I'm still thinking about the stuff and I'm allowing myself to come to a conclusion perhaps in the scene or think about what's next. And then I might, after the shower, write that down just like at the bottom of the Word document. But but then I have to move on with my day. And that's about to change because I want to write until noon soon. But and is that it for the day then? Are you at 7 o'clock, you're done and mm-hmm. you're, you're no longer writing? I wrote all of Boy Erased in about a, you know, a year and a half using that method just two hours every morning Mm -hmm. you're not coming back to it throughout the day if you're really concentrated for those two hours you can write a lot how how many words do you tend to get done um is is there an aim or did you say right i need to get this down or is it just uh seven o'clock i'm done 
Yeah, it's it's time based. How many words would you imagine you'd get done in in, that, in those two hours? Mm, I don't know the exact word count, but I would say five or six pages. So throughout the day, then, obviously writing memoir, it's not so much as letting the ideas percolate. Is that it's kind of figuring out what memories you're going to put in and how you're going to portray them. Well, I think memoir. What's really strong about memoir is, is that it can ingest a lot of philosophical and theoretical concepts that people are thinking of at the time. So, for example, I was versed in queer theory for, you know, I, I had a degree in it. So in looking back at my memories, I was able to use the framework of, say, Foucault to to look at, um, you know, what was happening to me from an outside perspective. It, it just gives depth and breadth to um, to the experience. So it's not so much that you'll look at the book and be like, oh, this is obviously based off of Foucault's theories, but um, but you can see that there's an influence in it, like through the even the diction that I choose to use. Can you very briefly sum up that theory for me, if that's okay? Well, I mean, what I latch onto with Foucault is the theory of power and how um, the structures in place in society generally make sure or ensure that... Um, sexuality is contained so traditional marriage is very important to do that because sexuality is a libidinal force that can actually disrupt you know society and when people are allowed to have that freedom for example if if we stop defining um, relationships based off of the nuclear family then things get a little bit messy and it's harder to control people Um, whereas if we define marriage a certain way and we restrict it and we have an economic um, incentive for it that that excludes other people that might not have access to that sort of, you know, system, um, then then we can more easily control people. And I think that that's, that's something I, I put into almost every page of Boy Erased. Now, I, I'm very aware the way this show usually works in that I, I get an author to come sit down with me and we, we talk just about the process as mm-hmm. you have done and there's always a slight contention because I'm aware they're aware they've got a book to sell <laughs> <laughs> but we don't usually get into the deep you know synopsis mm-hmm. of what the book is yeah but I think to talk about yours and to talk about the process of how it was plotted how it was planned and finally published mm-hmm. we do need to do a short summary of Boy Erased, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Yeah, I know that's that you've fine. talked about it for quite a while. Um, but could you just tell us what the book is and then we'll move on to uh, how it was written? Yeah, it's, a, it's an experience of my time in conversion therapy, which is a type of therapy that's designed to turn LGBTQ people, quote-unquote, straight, whatever that is. And, um, and it, you know, it was in Memphis, Tennessee in the U.S., and it was a based off of a 12-step program that was designed to lead you out of the sin of your, in my case, homosexuality. And it used, you know, some discarded uh, Freudian theory and some really bad uh, therapeutic techniques to try to change people. And this was all uh, because you you come from quite a religious family. Yeah, my father's a missionary Baptist preacher, and so it's very, very conservative. Um, And, you know, we're from the Bible Belt, which is... You know, there's a church on every corner, if not more than one. Were you given a choice? No, I was given an ultimatum. Um, my father said that if I didn't go, then I wouldn't get to see my family again, and I wouldn't have any money when I went to college. And um, and uh, so I agreed to go because I was terrified. 
did you go into it at all with an open mind? Yes, or- I did. I mean, I, I grew up 18 years going to church three times a week and believing in, you know, capital G God. And um, so to me, none of that was so strange. I mean, when I entered the therapy, it was obviously, you know, very strange to go through a 12-step program sitting next to people dealing with bestiality and pedophilia. Um, but but um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was an open mind because I don't think anything was really open in my mind at that time. But I, I didn't need an open mind. I was already brainwashed. At what point did you think this isn't going to work? Well, I, I mean, the whole time I had this question about whether or not it would work because I knew that I was gay and, you know, I, I thought that it was... The therapy sessions were a little bit hokey and, and there was one where I had to sit across from a chair and imagine my father in it and I was I was told to to yell at my father and to say that I hated him. And I remember thinking, like, okay, this is a Christian organization, and they're asking me to hate my father. It's sort of the opposite of the compassion that you see in, you know, Christ's teachings. And I I remember thinking, like, this is crazy, and so I left. What do you think now about the church and religion? How are you able to buy into something that you spent so much of your uh, youth uh, kind of believing in when, by nature, it tried to change the very nature of who you are? Yeah, I mean, I take a compassionate stance with most religion um, because I came from that and I really believed it. And I guess maybe my alliances lie with the people who are in many ways indoctrinated by some of the belief systems that I was indoctrinated with. And I feel sorry for them um, because I can see, you know, that's your entire world. You don't see anything outside of it. And these people think that we're all crazy. You know, they they look at the coasts and they think, you know, everyone there is kind of insane. And, um, yeah, they're, they're afraid of any other ideas. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I had actually come home uh, one summer... I was living in Ukraine teaching for Peace Corps um, and I was doing like HIV AIDS training there and I went home one summer because my mom begged me to 
And I found the old handbook from the conversion therapy camp that I went to. It was in my bottom drawer, and I thought that I'd thrown it away. And I started reading through it again and reading through my notes. And I remember, like, for whatever reason, thinking, like, this is actually a good story. I mean, it had been, it'd been a, a while since I'd, you know, thought about my time there. And I remember I the first time, my, you know, my first experience reading that notebook, I said to my mom, this seems like a good story. And then I waited a while longer before I actually wrote a word of it because I was just like, I don't know how I'd even approach this text. Um, And I had a lot of survivor's guilt because I'd only been in love and action for, you know, I did like a six month one-on-one session with a counselor that's associated with them. And then I did two weeks there. So I was like, okay, you know, other people, you know, committed suicide. Other people had been in the therapy sessions for two years, six years. They'd lost a decade of their life, for example. And I thought, who am I to tell this story? And then slowly it sort of dawned on me as I started to write a few paragraphs, you know, here and there, that maybe I was more qualified to talk about it because I hadn't been as horribly abused and I could actually look at it more objectively. Um, And I still had a relationship with my parents, so I was able to have access to their thought patterns during that time period. And I was also able to contact some of the counselors who had walked away from the therapy and, and say, like, what was going on in your mind at the time? Why were you doing this? And I had a lot of interviews with those people. And where do you start then? So you've gone back, you found uh, your notebooks and your textbooks from from back when this was happening, and then then you sit down to write a few paragraphs. Mm -hmm. Where are you deciding where to begin? How are you plotting it? How are you planning this? Because usually when I chat to authors, you know, they're writing uh, fiction. Usually Mm -hmm. it's a novel. It's something they've brooded over for a while. They've Mm -hmm. got the intricate mind map and the spreadsheet over where everything's going at what time. How does that work for you? Because you're drawing on quite a horrific experience where'd you start with that well i just decided to start with the first day of therapy in the two-week more intense program because i thought dramatically it was the most intense way to start and i i pretty much kept with the chronology i mean the book is sectioned off really into two intervening parts and one is like the stuff that happened before going into the therapy and the other part the other strand is the therapy itself So each um, therapy day is labeled as a chapter, so the date, and then then I go through the day. Um, And I just found that to be maybe the best starting point because I I wanted to approach it as if I didn't know who I was back then. You know, it was almost like, what does it look like to look at this kid on June, I think, 7th, 2004, going into this place and how do I describe it almost as though it were a novel um, and and getting that kind of creative distance allowed me to reconstruct that person without hating him you know <laughs> like I was able to look at myself and be like okay be nice you know be nice to this character he's your character put him through hell he was through hell but like you've got to um you know, you can't be embarrassed, you can't be shy about revealing certain traits. Because if I thought it was just me, if I just looked at it directly, I would never want to write down any of the things that I actually thought. I, I would feel terrified. We spoke about language earlier mm-hmm. and, and, and the, the process of poetry. 
How did you think about that when you were writing this story? So you, you just spoke about how the book is sectioned off into days of your therapy. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Did that require deep thought or did it just naturally, organically happen? So the first chapter was organic, like entirely like I'm going to try to write a day in therapy. That was just sort of an exercise I did for myself. And then I was actually sitting in this Chinese restaurant that had an amazingly beautiful appetizer. (laughs) And the appetizer was, it was very simple. It was just like these perfectly cut cucumber sticks and carrots and this like sauce next to it. And it was really good. And um, I took a cucumber and a carrot and put it next to each other. And then I was like, I took another cucumber and another carrot. It was a very simple structure. It was like, okay, I can have a day in each you know each day in the camp is the cucumber and each day leading up or each you know time period leading up to the camp is the carrot and the two chronologies will move forward in time so that by the time you reach the end of the book the um the stuff leading up to it is leading like literally leading up to the first day of camp so there's an irony there to where like you reach the end and you're like oh it's the beginning again um, I think that's the best thing to ever come from carrots and cucumbers, yeah. if, I'm be- if I'm being honest. Yeah. Disgusting vegetable. They're uh, actually pretty great. I, mean, uh, I, I might agree with you on cucumbers. They're kind of tasteless. Yeah, I mean, this is not what we're here to discuss. Yeah. I, I don't want to hijack the chat, but I loathe cucumbers as well. Um, so language then. When you're writing memoir, it's obviously by very definition this happened, this happened, mm-hmm. this happened, this happened. You've mentioned how you read poetry to to inspire the way you told the story. Mm-hmm. How much were you thinking about what word followed the next mm. one? Um, I think there's like a melody in my head to the way that I want sentences to sound. And um, once I got the first line of the book, which is something like, um, John Smith stood tall, square-shouldered, beaming behind thin wire-rimmed glasses like I could hear the rhythm like you know and and when you do that you're like okay I want the rest of the book to sound that way at least in those chapters um and I don't really know how to describe it other than I would read each sentence aloud and a word would bother me and I would sit there until the word didn't bother me anymore so I would change it um I have no idea how that magic works <laughs> and I don't question it. I'm just like, okay, you know, let's, and I, I'm one of those painstaking writers. It drives me insane that I do this, but you know, people tell you not to um, obsess over each sentence, but I obsess over each sentence before I move on to the next one. I cannot move on to the next sentence until I feel that the, the previous sentence is done. What does it need to be done? It needs to have the music. So I need to read it out loud and not feel annoyed by it. And if if I'm not annoyed, like I'm never happy about it. Like I'm never happy with any of my sentences. But if I'm not annoyed, then I know that it's good enough to move on to the next thing. And it's almost like you're listening to a tune and suddenly something's out of tune. And um, if it's out of tune, then I won't move on to the next part. My disgust with cucumber kind of derailed a question that I was going to ask uh, about plotting. Mm-hmm. So you've got your format, A, B, A, B, mm-hmm. A, B, yep. A, B. How did you know what was coming next? Uh, did you have a an elaborate method of keeping track of where your story was going? How did you know what you were writing or the mm-hmm. next point on your roadmap? Well, there, there were some pretty basic 
structural things that had to be in place for the story to make sense. I mean, I had a teacher, I, I workshopped one chapter of the book in a creative writing workshop, and the teacher said, this is a classic escape story. If you ignore that, then you're going to infuriate your reader. So I was like, okay. So I kept thinking, like, how do I keep making the walls close in so that the reader continues to be like, oh my God, just get out. You know, that, that sort of annoyance that you get while watching a film, for example, or reading a certain book where you're like, stop being so stupid, turn around, walk out the door. And so, you know, maybe that annoyance continues over like a hundred pages. And then when the character does actually leave, you're like, oh my God, and it's pure catharsis, right? So I knew that I wanted to capture that feeling in the book. I wanted it to feel as though um, there was almost no hope, and then suddenly the character breaks free. Truman Show. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I love The Truman Show. It's a great <laughs> film. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense for me because my entire worldview was a wrong one, and then suddenly you open up your eyes and you're like, there's this whole other world. I mean, it's a total metaphor for that. Do you think when you say that your whole worldview was warped and wrong, mm-hmm. was that just during... The conversion therapy or for the first 19, 20 years of your life? I think the two were uh, linked, you know, in a very clear way. I think all the bigotry and all of the prejudice and the stereotypes of my childhood were just institutionalized, but it was the same stuff. Then when you've left, mm-hmm. if you're using the Truman Show, I can't believe I'm doing this. Uh, if, do we, <laughs> if we're using the Truman Show metaphor, yes. you've stepped outside. I think it, the Truman show, show metaphor is better than the Matrix metaphor. Just saying. Okay, I thought you were going to say better than the book then. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> I was like, true. it's a great film, but yeah, when probably. you've stepped outside, how long does it then take you to acclimatise to the rest of the world and to open your eyes to how everything possibly should be seen? Um, I think it's impossible to ever complete that process. I mean, I was never taught what evolution was, you know, in high school, I was told, you know, we're going to skip over that chapter because it's not real. And they're just talking about a bunch of monkeys. (laughs) So, um, you know, you can imagine at, at, you know, 19 suddenly being like, oh, there's this thing called evolution and there's this guy called Darwin. Do you remember the moment? Do you remember the precise moment that this all changed for you and you thought, hang on. Yeah. Everything I've been taught so far could I, be a lie. I had that almost every day of college where I would be like, wait, nobody told me this. So like, why did your parents let you go? Um, well, my mom took me out. I called her on the last you know day that I was yeah. there and I said, I need to go home and it's an emergency. And she showed up and the counselors came up to the side of the car and they said he needs to stay you know three months, a year, etc. And she finally snapped and said, I don't know why I've never asked this, but what are your qualifications? And the guy was like, well, I've been through Alcoholics Anonymous, and that guy over there is a marriage counselor. And my mom was just like, this is crazy. And then we got in the car, and we didn't know if we were staying or leaving, and she turned to me and she said, are you going to kill yourself? And I said, yes. And um, she decided that she was not going to have a dead gay son. (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, I would be gay either way. Mm. So dead or alive, take me, (laughs) whichever version you want. Um, And so we we went home and dad was like, did it work? And we were like, no. And we didn't talk about it for 10 years. Um, It kind of feels a bit strange to to clunkingly bring us back to the point of the show. I'm happy to go back to the point of the show. So you mentioned knowing your readers earlier on 
mm-hmm. painting the picture to them that yeah. you're in this escape situation. I don't want to be callous about it, but when you're writing, you do, have you, to be. do you think... Are you going through things that happen to you, memories that you have, thinking, oh, this might be a bit juicy, this mm-hmm. will keep them in, in, engaged? Yeah, I mean, I was very careful not to make it too juicy. Like, I, I knew that I needed the reader to feel that there was salacious material um, that could be shocking. But then I wanted to always counterbalance that material with um, a sort of deeper understanding of where these things came from. So, you know, the first reaction that a reader might have is like, oh, these are just a bunch of hicks in Arkansas who don't know what they're doing. And but I wanted the second reaction to be like, oh, I see these things in my everyday life. You know, people have these prejudices all around me. And yes, this is an extreme version of this. But if you leave these things unchecked, they become they morph into something more dangerous. I mean, history tells us that over and over again. Right. Like you you're anti-Semitic and then suddenly there's a concentration camp, you know, like, so these ideas are not unconnected. I speak to a lot of crime and thriller authors on the show and they quite often talk about the mechanics of keeping a reader interested Mm -hmm. simply page to page. Did you think about that at all while you were writing this? All the time. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes liked to upset the expectations of the reader and draw something out for too long so that they're, they're almost frustrated, but then snap back into action. Um, I like I like being aware of these conventions and then sort of touring with them a little bit. So there's a section in the book that's like so long. It's about do you remember that movie The Passion of the Christ? Which like yeah, I've never seen gets, it. I remember it being a thing. Yeah, it's not great. It's not a great view. <laughs> but um I so I have an entire section of the book that's just like painstakingly describing watching that film from my perspective and from my friend's perspective. And um and yeah, I think that goes on for like 20 pages. <laughs> it's like, why? You know, but I wanted it, I wanted the reader to feel um, the importance and the impact of that film at the time in creating a sense of urgency for these Christians who were fundamentalists. Well, let me quickly touch on that part then with the Passion of the Christ. Mm-hmm. And you know it's going to be 20 pages and that it's going to be quite torturous possibly for a, a, a reader to to go through mm-hmm. are you thinking during that i need to provide some light and shade here and I, I need to provide something that's going to keep them interested or are you just saying <laughs> this is my story read it well i do both i mean um charles and dominique who are also in the in that chapter they're they're these two singers at the school who were african-american and and they were outcasts in many ways and they're really funny people, and so their dialogue is like interspersed with the with watching the Passion of the Christ and like sort of making fun of it, and but also being serious. And so it would go back and forth with their dialogue. I allowed that to happen, um, but mostly like I mean, my my American editor at one point said, sometimes reading this book feels like we're circling a drain, but we can never just go down the drain. <laughs> and I said, good, <laughs> that's what I wanted the book to feel like. <laughs> It's almost, there's almost a horror element to it in some ways that I played with. You mentioned uh, two characters then. Mm-hmm. Very quickly before my last question. Yeah. How much are you thinking about uh, portray- portraying these characters in an accurate manner? Or are you just thinking this was who they were to me at the time? Well, I mean, I had a lot of struggles with that. I would stay up really late 
at night, like unable to sleep thinking, oh my God, are people going to hate me? Is Am I doing it right? Am I telling the truth? You know, as a memoirist, you're always remembering in vivid detail. I don't know if you can recall this, the moment when the author James Frey was yelled at by Oprah for telling a lie, like oh, many lies in his book, um, A Million Little Pieces. And she had brought him on earlier in the show and then she comes back on like later and he didn't even know what was going on and she like confronts him and she's like, you're a liar, you lied to my audiences, I trust you. Um, and like in as a memoirist, you've just always got that version of a possibility in your head and you're like, oh my God, I described the teapot as red, but it was probably blue. <laughs> Oprah's going to yell at me. Um, and so so I had so many fears about like being real and true. And at some point, I talked to a professor who'd written a couple of memoirs, and he said, you know, people are always going to hate you for something in the book, but it's never the thing that you think they'll hate you for. He was like, um, my mom... You know, I I told all about my mom's abuse, and then she was really upset that I described the carpet as ugly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you just can't. And then I actually got some really cool advice. Do you know um, Cheryl Strayed, who did Wild? Uh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So I was at a writer's conference, and one should never do this, but, you know, she was talking to a friend of mine. She didn't know who I was. And I came over and, you know, she does this, like, advice column called Dear Sugar. So she's always, like, giving advice to writers and people. And I said, oh, my God, I'm so worried that my memoir is going to make everyone in my family hate me. And she goes, it was, like, typical Cheryl Strayed, like, perfect. She was like, honey, the people who already hate you are going to continue to hate you. And the people who love you are going to continue to love you. That's it. And I was like... Okay, if Cheryl Strayed said that, then I'm okay. <laughs> you know, she was like, they'll get over it. If they're hurt, they'll get over it. If you've done it in the right spirit, if you haven't lied, if you've been honest to the version that you remember, you know, if someone's temporarily hurt by your words, they'll get over it. Let me take you right back to the beginning to end then. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the writing routine of this book, Boy Erased. You mentioned that you're working on a novel then. Mm-hmm. What has changed about the way you are writing this and the way you're working on it from what you've learned from Boy Arrays? Well, I mean, I'm writing a historical fiction novel, first of all, so I've got all these sources just everywhere, and I can't get enough of the research. Um, so that's that's been a very different change. It also feels so freeing. It's like, I can do whatever I want, and um, I can, you know, I'm not hurting myself in the same way by writing it. Um, it feels sort of like now I just feel bad when I hurt my characters, but you have to, if you're going to make a good drama, you know, they have to have pain and they have to have intensity of experience. And, um, I just get so close to them that it, it feels sad whenever I make them do something that, you know, is bad or, or hurts them. Still waking up at five o'clock every morning? (laughs) I'm trying. I mean, obviously, like, this tour has been really hard to keep doing that. I mean, the jet lag itself really does a number. Um, But when I get back to New York, definitely back on the 4.30 to 7 train, maybe 11 if I'm lucky. And that 
is why we let it play unedited right through to the end. Massive thank you to Garrett Conley then. His book, Boy Erased, it's out right now. The film starring Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman is out later on this year. Yeah, just a huge thanks to Garrett for, for coming in, for having a chat with me, for sparing some of his precious time in, in the week or so that he was over here in the UK. I know he's been very, very busy recently, and I know that he was a bit tired in interviews of answering the standard questions that a book like this uh, provokes. And I really hope that he was pleased that we got a bit deeper with the writing process of how this fantastic book was written. Now, you can get links to all of Garrett's stuff on our website right now. That is writersroutine.com. Please, while you're online, give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed the show as well, head over to the iTunes podcast store and leave us a review. Now, next time, we're chatting to a writer who wants to change the way you think and how you tap into success and find that light that we're all born with. So that'll be something different. Hopefully a lot of fun too. I will see you then next week on Writer's Routine. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.